chapter 9. I'm going to read from verses 1 to 7. You'll find it on page 606 of one of the Bibles at the back, if you have one of those. Isaiah chapter 9, and reading from verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her that was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation, thou hast increased its joy. They rejoice before thee as with joy at the harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his, for his shoulder, for the rod of his oppressor, thou hast broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The address this morning is not suitable for people under 10. I hope they won't uh, find it too poor. And uh, if they become too vociferous, We'll just, um, you know, I don't mind. The noise of children never worries me, but it might worry some of the old people here. <laughs> uh, yesterday morning, we finished with the one supreme word of our initial study uh, in the prophecies of Isaiah, which sum up chapter 7. Emmanuel, God with us. I do hope you've got your Bibles. I hope you've got your charts. If you haven't got a chart, if you didn't get the historical chart yes, yesterday, uh, Colin has got some, and you can have one from him. But if you've merely forgotten to bring yours, I'm sorry we haven't got enough to give, give round. I had to get them photostatted in, in uh, Seven Oaks. And uh, we've only got a limited number. But you gladly can have one if you... Anybody up aloft want one? The second in our series this week, the first one, The Virgin Conceives, 7.14. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. And today a child is born, a son <coughs> is given. A child is born, 
a son is given. And we shall consider more fully the significance of that double phrase in a few moments. But for this morning, the, uh, that, that was yesterday's outline, which we won't deal with again. But this chapter is summed up in a sentence. The first part of the sentence is, from gloom to glory. I was interested that John West, in his prayer, I noticed it, you wouldn't, of course, but I noticed that he used the word gloom, he used the word glory. And these are the very words in this chapter. Verse 1. There will be no gloom for her that was in anguish. In the former time he brought them into contempt, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter times he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. What had happened? Yesterday's talk was in the year 735 BC. Ahaz, as you see from your chart, had just come to the throne as co-regent with his father Jotham. And it was in that very year that the hearts of the people of Israel, of Judah rather, shook like the trees of the forest before the wind when they heard that the confederacy of Syria and Israel were coming to attack them, to destroy Ahaz. Column one, you see, Ahaz 732 to 716. But he was already king in 735 with his father. And there was gloom, lots of it. But then the prediction of destruction which God gave because they would not believe actually came to pass. And because Syria and Israel had sinned against the Lord, God's judgments upon them fell. Listen to this. 2 Kings 15, 29. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser III, here he is in column 4, 745 to 727, a real historical character, Tiglath-Pileser III. He came and captured Ijon and various other places, Kadesh, Hazor, Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, all the land of Naphtali. And he carried the people captive to Assyria. Then Hoshea, the son of Elah, made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Remelah, and struck him down and slew him and reigned in his stead. So God's first judgment against Israel came to pass, and Pekah was slain. What had God said in chapter 7? Don't be afraid, Ahaz, of these two smoldering firebrands. They shall not conquer the land. God's word comes true. And here's Pekah, swept off the scene of history. Uh, chapter 16 gives the story about Syria. Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I'm your servant and your son. Dreadful, isn't it? A king reigning in the name of Jehovah, the God of heaven, saying to this pagan king, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and the gold that was found in the house of the Lord, in the treasures of the king's house, and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria hearkened to him, 
the king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it and carried his people captive to Kir and he killed Rezin. So there you've got column two, Pekah. You see, king of Israel, 740 to 732, killed. Next column, column three, Rezin. King of Syria, reigned from 750 to 732, killed. So the year is 732. And great gloom had come upon Judah because they were now in the hands, really, in the control of the king of Assyria. It's a fatal thing to make an alliance with evil. And in our lives, if we try to pull strings, to organize things using worldly evil methods, we are bound to fail. And we shall fall upon very evil days, as Judah did. There's gloom, lots of gloom. I wonder if there's any gloom in uh, your heart and mind this morning. Well, this chapter tells us that we may move from gloom to glory. There's lots of gloom, you know, in the world. What about the gloom of uh, ill health? Anybody got that sort of gloom in their minds today? the gloom of an impending operation. It's a very real thing. And a very right thing in one sense, a very natural thing. After all, we are human. And there's gloom of all kinds in people's minds and hearts. The gloom of fear for the future. Will my financial resources last out? A lot of people are terribly worried. I don't know what it means to be laid off but there are tens of thousands of people in our country who are being laid off because their firms can't employ them. This is terrifying. And it brings gloom and fear. And gloom of all kinds pervades people's minds and hearts. And above all, there's the gloom of sin. And God destroyed the people of Israel and Syria 732 for Syria and 10 years later 722 for Israel under Tiglath-Pileser's successor Shalmaneser because of their sin and there is absolutely no doubt whatever that the scripture teaches that there is judgment to come God is a moral governor and this universe is founded on moral principles don't let any of us think that we shall get away with it. Morally, we won't. Sin is bound to be judged and bound to be punished. Uh, just one or two references from 2 Kings 17, which show why God, with the deepest regret and sorrow, had eventually to destroy those ten tribes of the northern kingdom part of his own people of Israel. Chapter 17 tells the whole story. I'll just quote one or two verses. Verse 7. This was so because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and Israel had feared other gods. Verse 9. They built for themselves high places at all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city, 
and the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. Secretly. Oh, nobody knew. Didn't they? God knew. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of spoilers until he had cast them out of his sight. And so there was gloom all around. And then there comes this wonderful, glorious chapter 9. There will be no gloom for her that was in anguish. God hasn't abdicated. God is still the governor. God has plans for redemption and restoration. And those who were in contempt in Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, in the latter time he will make glorious the way of the sea. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has the light shined. You see, after the darkness there's the dawn. And God is going to bring the dawn. He's going to bring this glorious light. Thou hast multiplied the nation, thou hast increased its joy. They rejoice before thee as with joy in harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, thou hast broken as on the day of Midian. What does that mean? You see, if you don't know your Bible, you can't understand the vividness of this language. What does it mean to say that, uh, that the rod of this, the oppressor is going to be broken as on the day of Midian? What's the day of Midian? Well, of course, you know because you're educated Christians. But millions of so-called Christians in this country wouldn't have a clue. The day of Midian? Why, it's the day of Gideon, of course. You know little Gideon when he's 300 men in three parties of 100 all around the camp of the Midianites. This vast horde of, pagan, of the pagan kings of the Midianites. And there they were, all in the valley, and Gideon had 300 men. But they each had a pitcher, a, an earthenware pitcher. And they each had a torch, a blazing torch, and they each had a trumpet. And they each had the Spirit of God. And as the signal was given, the pitchers were smashed, the torches were lifted, the trumpets were blown, and the Midianites were utterly destroyed. It's a magnificent story. Here it is in Judges chapter 7 and 8. And as in the day of Midian, God is going to destroy the evil. And all the marks of battle are going to be destroyed and burnt up. Isn't verse 5 wonderful? Every boot of the tra trampling warrior in battle <coughs> tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. All the marks of war and destruction are themselves going to be destroyed and eliminated. And so God has glory ahead of us. And this is an important thing for us to realize, that the contemporary historical situation in Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9 are pictures of the spiritual situation which is going to occur when? Well, let me give you one New Testament reference. Matthew 4, verse 12. The Lord Jesus Christ withdrew from Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went to dwell in Capernaum by the sea. 
and he dwelt in Capernaum in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Have you heard that word already this morning? You've heard it three times. Naphtali. Go on listening. He went to dwell in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali toward the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the, uh, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in great darkness have seen a great light. For those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. And so the historical situation way back in 732 BC was a spiritual picture, really, of the light that was going to be seen in AD 29, when the Lord Jesus went and lived in Naphtali. And he went around preaching. And it isn't literal light, you see. It isn't the light from the sky or the aurora borealis or any of these fantastic lights, physical lights, as you might say, that we see. It was light in the soul. And the people in Galilee saw the light and they saw the glory because the Christ had come. You see, that's the meaning of it. And that's the fantastic way in which these prophecies are fulfilled. Don't tell me that the Bible is not an in, a divinely inspired book. It's absolutely fantastic the way it's all threaded together. The whole Bible is an integrated whole. 66 books written over a period of 1,500 years. And yet it all says the same thing. It's all linked and meshed together. And here's this wonderful prophecy fulfilled in our Lord's time, and yet not fulfilled yet fully. But how is the light coming? How is this glory to be revealed? The first word of verse 6 is vitally important. Again I say it, as I said yesterday, how is God going to bring the victory? Through another Gideon? Through another Samson? Through another Churchill? Through another Montgomery? Oh no. For. F-O-R. For. Because. How is the light coming? Where's the glory coming from? For. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government <coughs> shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. And so the complete sentence, summing up that wonderful first seven verses of Isaiah 9, is just that to me. From gloom to glory, through the gift and government of God's Son. And that's what we're going to think of this morning. From gloom to glory, through the gift and the government of his Son. And verse 6, of course, is the key verse of this wonderful passage. The Deliverer has come. Now why does the prophet repeat himself, as it were? Of course we know that Hebrew writing was very much like that. In the Psalms, for instance, you'll have a similar thought uh, presented in two different ways in the same verse. The first line says something, and the second line says exactly the same thing in slightly different words. What we might call antiphonal singing. One side sings the first line, the second side, li side sings the second line. They say the same thing, 
but there's a balance and a fullness in this wonderful Hebrew writing which maybe uh, we haven't quite detected yet. But what does Isaiah mean when he says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given? Does it say exactly the same thing? Not quite. Not quite. Unto us a child is born. This is our Lord's humanity. He was born. This is a physical human experience. To be born. Every one of us has been born. I was born. I know I was born. I was there when it happened. I don't remember it, but I was there. And you were born. A child is born. This refers to the physical human event of a child born. The son is given. This refers to his deity. The son is given. One of the verses that Justin quoted last night, the best-known verse in the Bible, maybe, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And this second phrase here in verse 6, meaning his deity, is deliberate. To us a son is given. God particularly and specially gave his son. In my Bible reading this morning, in the ordinary course of my daily reading, which of course I as a Christian do regularly as you do, it's one of the greatest possible privileges for us Christians to have a personal talk with our God day by day, morning by morning, at the beginning of every day. And in my particular reading this morning, it said this, that um, in verse 35 of Luke 1, one of the most sacred verses in the whole Bible, this lovely teenage girl, Mary, having been told by the angel that she was to be the mother of Messiah, was naturally very worried. She says to the angel, but I'm a virgin. A natural, right thing to say. And she immediately detected that she'd have to face the most incredible criticism and possibly even death by stoning if she as a virgin became pregnant. This is laid down clearly in the law. You know, God's moral standards are very, very high. And you and I break those standards at our peril. And our nation today breaks those standards at their peril. And Mary instantly realized that she was in an extremely dangerous position. And then the angel said this to her, this wonderful verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born, the child to be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God. A child born, a son given. I must just say this, although it isn't as part of the sequence of my thought. Mary's closing words to the angel Gabriel were these. Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. What wonderful humility. What complete submission to the will of God. And it was a very costly thing to do for Mary because she couldn't possibly see 
what the consequences would be to her personally. But Isaiah said, 700 odd years before, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And so there was the gift of God's son. But will you notice a vital part of the answer to the world's gloom is not only the gift of the son, but the government by the son. The government shall be upon his shoulder. If you've ever been a scout, I expect, as I did, you learned how to make the fireman's lift. You can lift a very heavy person who's completely unconscious if you put them on your shoulder. The shoulder of a man is something very powerful and very strong. And the shoulder here stands for strength and ability. You see, the Bible is just packed full of these verbal illustrations. It's the most wonderful book in the world, this. And the more you read it, the more you realize how wonderful it is, how vivid it is, how expressive it is. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. He is utterly adequate for every eventuality. There's no problem with God as we were told last week by Justin, I think it was, there are no problems with God, there are only opportunities. God is totally adequate and able to meet any situation and the government will be upon his shoulder. And so we are called not only to receive the gift but to submit to the government of God's Son. And finally, just for a few minutes this morning, I want to uh, study with you that wonderful fourfold name of the Son of God. The God-Man, Wonderful Counselor, is the first name. And I think it's correct to put it that way, not Wonderful, comma, Counselor, as it says in the A.V., it could be that way, but I think better is what the RSV has it, wonderful counsellor. <coughs> wonderful as an adjective. The word wonderful really means supernatural. Do you remember the story of Samson? Uh, Samson's father was a man called Manoah. And the angel came to Manoah and he said, Sam, uh, he said, Manoah, your wife is going to have a baby. And told him all about Samson coming. And Manoah was absolutely thrilled to bits, of course, because they longed to have a son. And um, then Manoah said to this angelic figure, this heavenly messenger, he said, what is your name? And the answer came back, why do you ask me my name? Because my name is Wonderful. Wonderful. Was this a pre-incarnation appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ? I think it was as happened on a number of occasions in the Old Testament. My name is wonderful, supernatural, heavenly. And he wouldn't give him his name. My name is wonderful. And the Lord Jesus Christ's name is wonderful counselor. What a wonderful name, a supernatural counselor. Uh, have not, uh, has not every one of us in this chapel this morning at times felt the need for counsel and advice. 
Of course, some of you young ones have never had any big problems in life, have you really? Not really. You wait. They'll come later. But you know, sometimes you find you need legal counsel, for instance. You've got to go to a solicitor, because you don't know how the thing works, and you've got to have counsel and advice. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the wonderful counsellor. And to me, I put it this way. He's wonderful and wise. Wonderful and wise. What a friend is this child born, this son given. He's wonderful and wise. He never gives wrong advice. He never guides you foolishly. He's utterly wise. When I was articled as a clerk to a firm of chartered accountants in the city many years ago now, of course, before I qualified, unfortunately, unfortunately, in inverted commas, in the view of my principal and various other people, I was invited by an organization called the Scripture Union uh, to join the staff and to go to India as a worker amongst young people. It was a very, very terrible thing to have. Here was I, halfway through. Give up my profession, give up my career, give up my prospect of £20,000 a year. It took me two years to make my mind up and to get the right guidance. But I was a Christian, and I went daily to my wonderful and wise friend. I took the advice of older Christians as well. Oh yes, I, I put things down on paper, the pros and the cons. I found lots of cons. Oh yes, I was totally inadequate for the job in, in prospect and everything else. There were lots of things against it. There were just a few pros, perhaps. Oh yes, I went into it with the utmost care and detail. But my wonderful and wise friend guided me. And I've never earned £20,000 a year, or £10,000 a year, or £5,000 a year, or £2,000 a year. But I'm terribly happy. And all these years have been just filled with the one most wonderful fulfilment because I've been doing nearly all my life what the Hildebrand team is now doing in these schools locally here. I've been to hundreds and hundreds of school assemblies. I've taken hundreds, literally, of, of RE periods in schools. I've never had hundreds of concerts playing a guitar because I can't play a guitar, but I mean... I've played hockey and I've refereed boxing and I've... I've, I've umpired swimming and goodness knows I've lived in the life of the school for a fortnight and my wonderful wise counsellor told me to do it looking back on it I can see it so clearly now of course lots of people thought I was nuts to give up such a wonderful profession but he guides and he directs the second thing about him is that he's the mighty God. He's mighty and majestic. He's utterly mighty. He's all-powerful. He's strong. And he's majestic. He's the king. He's the creator. He's the ruler. 
The Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew 28, the last thing he said before he went back to heaven, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore. And I know that my mighty, majestic friend, dare I call him that? Yes, I do, has been with me all these years. He's given me a strength far beyond natural strength because he's mighty and he's majestic. He's mighty to save, mighty to keep, mighty to guide, mighty to enable for every situation. And he's majestic. You know, I think there's a danger sometimes today, particularly with younger people, to lose a sense of the majesty of God. You know, God is very, very majestic. He's a very, very great person. I sometimes shiver just a little bit when I hear speakers saying about uh, Jesus this, Jesus did this, Jesus said this, Jesus this, Jesus this. I more and more am inclined always to call him the Lord Jesus. Now this may be a little bit of a bee in my bonnet. It isn't wrong to call him Jesus, for his name is Jesus. But I think more and more we Christians ought to get built into us a sense of the majesty of God. He's the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus. And this is what he is, the mighty God. And then, of course, comes a very, very difficult problem for you people who are theologians and deep Bible students. How could it possibly be, be, be that he is called the everlasting Father? He's not the Father. He's the Son. But then why call him the everlasting Father? Problem, isn't it? Well, it is a bit of a problem, but you know there's plenty of light on the subject. I studied this very carefully. I discovered, for instance, in John chapter 14, verse 18, where the Lord Jesus is talking to those disciples just before his death. He said, I'm not going to leave you fatherless. It says in our translation here, I'm not going to leave you desolate. But the word actually is the Greek word orphanos, which means an orphan or fatherless. In the book of Hebrews, I read that he is the author of eternal salvation. I read also that he is the author of our faith, the sense of fathering our salvation, fathering our faith. He's the beginner of it. And in Hebrews chapter 2, he talks about the children whom God has given me. It isn't quite a usual understanding, I realize this, of course, as you do, that to call the Lord Jesus the everlasting Father, but I think the emphasis there is on his fatherly care, his fatherly concern for us, his desire always to protect us. And so I put it that way to myself. He's lasting because he's everlasting. He's lasting and he's loving. Uh, perhaps you and I oughtn't to think of our own father because to some of us our own father is a very or has been a very wonderful person. Mine was. But maybe for some of us we're not quite so fortunate. Well, don't think of your own father if it doesn't bring up before you a beautiful, lovely, strong image of fatherly care. Think of the best father you've ever heard of. And he outstrips that father. And his lasting and loving care 
for you and me is so wonderful. Are you a bit afraid of what's going to happen after Christmas? Have some of your friends maybe let you down recently? This friend will never let you down because he's lasting. And are you afraid of what's going to happen after Christmas when you go back to work? Are you afraid of being laid off as being redundant? It could be for some of us, I suppose. Will you remember that his loving care will never fail? And my wife and I can testify to the fact that his loving care and provision, fatherly provision, has been with us all these years. Will you forgive another personal detail? I can say it now because it's all past. Many times in India, our bank balance was single figures in rupees. Now, you probably don't know what a rupee is. In those days, a rupee was worth one and sixpence. In other words, twelve and, um, seven and a half pence in our present coinage. Seven and a half pence. And our bank balance was down to single figures in rupees. But we were never in debt. Somehow or other, God did it. His lasting, loving care just kept us. I don't know how it happened. But he did it. And I can tell you from my own experience that this everlasting father, this lasting, loving friend, will never let you down. Do trust him. Trust him. And the last thing, of course, is that he gives peace and prosperity. That lovely name, the Prince of Peace. And in the Hebrew word peace, there is included the element of prosperity. Not mere peace, that is calm and quiet, tranquility, but prosperity as well. So it's peace and prosperity. What a wonderful, glorious person the Lord Jesus Christ is. Unto us a child is given. Unto us a son is given. No, sorry, unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And this is the son. This is the child. Wonderful and wise. Mighty and majestic. Lasting and loving. With peace and prosperity. How a person can refuse to become a Christian when they have any inkling of what he is passes comprehension. What a friend. Shall we rejoice in him more and more in this wonderful Christmas week? And one final word about the word government. You know, it's possible to be a Christian and uh, to be very self-willed. It's possible to be a Christian and to be a disobedient Christian. The way you become a Christian, of course, is to receive the gift. That's the only way to become a Christian. We were thinking of that yesterday. We can't possibly earn salvation, whatever we are or whoever we are. Nobody can earn salvation. We receive him as a gift, and he is our salvation. So we become Christians by receiving the gift. But if we've genuinely received the gift, we must accept the government. And you know, it's not just government in a vague sort of airy-fairy general sense. I mean, I suppose every one of us here would say, well, of course, God's in charge of the day of my death. I don't know when I'm going to die. I suppose God knows that. But uh, 
Of course he does. God governs us, yes, in that general, large, wide sense. But I believe God's government comes right down to the details of life. How do you and I spend our money? Under God's government? How do we spend our time? Do we ever pray about how we use our time? What about our recreations? Do we ever ask God to guide us and to govern us in, in the choice of our recreations and the time we spend on them? And if you don't spend any time on recreation, I think you're making a big mistake. God expects us to have recreation. Of course he does. But it's under his government. You know, this to me has been a very, very shattering thought. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and my life, every aspect of it, has got to be governed by Jesus Christ. And so, the mental background attitude in all my doing, all my activity, all my planning, shall be, Lord, what's your will? And then I go, and go ahead and do it. I don't hold back because I don't hear a voice from heaven. After all, God has given me common sense. And in a great way, God's, our common sense is God's method of guiding us. But there's got to be that mental attitude, I really want to do God's will. I really want to accept his government. And his government is perfect freedom. It's not an onerous, dictatorial government. Oh, no. It's a wonderful government. And there's nothing more wonderful than being governed by him, day by day. And then, of course, some of this prophecy has not yet been fulfilled. So I'm not really going to talk about it. I don't quite understand how it's going to happen, but it is going to happen. For verse 7 hasn't yet happened. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Well, that obviously hasn't happened yet, has it? No peace in the world yet. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore, that hasn't happened yet. Mind you, it's beginning to get ready for the happening. What about all these Jews pouring back to Israel? Fantastic uh, prophecies of this book beginning to be fulfilled but verse 7 hasn't happened yet but it will happen verse 6 has happened that's come true and so verse 7 is coming true and I love that last phrase the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this will you forgive me putting it this way God has got immense drive and initiative and determination and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this and that makes me absolutely certain that it's going to happen God is somebody who keeps his word and the zeal of the Lord of hosts has already done some of it the child has been born the son has been given and verse 7 will one day come to pass so may we rejoice more and more in this wonderful Saviour, and we'll try and sing as a closing hymn while the staff go out and get their lunch.
and get ready for a splendid lunch for us. Um, number 223. Now, it's a little bit tricky because the uh, timing... I, I'm not a musician, but uh, I expect Max could explain all this to us. Um, but anyway, it's what's called in free rhythm. I you think that's what Max is very good at, aren't you, Max? Free rhythm? Well, uh, Ken, I think you might play through the verse and chorus, will you? Sort of, you know, rather emphasizing the tune. 